0: And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week.
1: We're so grateful that you guys would join us this morning. My name is Jed, and it's a privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And as Kyle said, I've actually known him since he was three years old. When I was 18 and left for Bible college, he was a little baby down in San Diego. And then a few years ago, he moved up here. And I actually invited him to church before working out, and he didn't come for a long time. But he's here now, and that's all that matters, and I'm grateful that he gets to be a part of this church family, just like me and you. So whether you are online or in person, whether you are a guest with us, or you know us after years or months of worshiping in and alongside this church family, we're grateful that you would spend a portion of your weekend here with us, Danny Ruckle. It's good to see you. I just noticed you're here. <laughs> I was gonna email you after this message, so here you go. Wanted to let you guys know that almost exactly a month ago, to this day, just a few days prior, something really important happened and affected many of you. You see, I was on the East Coast at school for an intensive weekend of study, and as I was preparing for class, I got a text message with this picture up on the screen, and uh, this is from Luke, one of our drummers, and then Papa Mike, one of our bass players, and they had said that the power in the building had gone out 20 minutes prior to service. Were you guys here for that? (laughs) And so Britt joked, the one Sunday that I left, the power shut off. And I don't know what that means, but I'm glad in some ways because that time extra bought me an extra weekend. You see, that Sunday morning, Britt was supposed to teach his message on the nine plagues leading up to this tenth and final one. And instead of doing that, he did a little devotional out there for you. And then the week after that, we had Palm Sunday and then Easter. And so I was supposed to give this message the week after Easter, and the timing was going to be really, really helpful, actually, even though it was going to shorten up the preparation, because we are going to be looking at the Passover, which is found in Exodus in chapters 11 through 13, and it was going to be pretty straightforward to take the Passover and connect it to the holiday we had just celebrated, Easter. Easter. And part of the backdrop there is we are going to express that Jesus and his disciples had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover along with many other Jews and people from all over the world. And on the night of his betrayal, he was going to share a Passover meal that he would then use to explain how he was going to have his body broken and his blood shed. And at the end of this message, Britt's actually going to come up and lead us in a time of communion. So that was going to be pretty much that message last week. Well, then Britt did a great job. And if you haven't, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message. Because as we're in this series or returning in this series where we're studying through the life of Moses, we saw last week his confrontation with Pharaoh. And there were these plagues that were going to be ascending in intensity. And each plague, as Britt did a great job explaining last week, they coincided with an Egyptian God. And so Yahweh, the Lord God, was showing Pharaoh and the Egyptians that he is the one true God and that none of those gods could stand against him. And yet, as we saw, Despite the acceleration of this timeline Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not relinquish control. He would not allow the people of Israel, the children of Israel who had been slave for 400 years to escape from his grasp. And so God tells Moses and his brother Aaron that he has one final plague to deliver. And I said this morning, I asked Britt to preface to the congregation that the beginning of this message was going to be a little bit heavy. And so I started with a picture of Luke and Papa Mike to just settle us into it. But as we look at this text and this passage, we're going to be confronted with some really difficult things. And there's a saying, there's no way around it. And so rather than try and bypass it, we want to walk through it together. So here is your first Fill in the blank. The Passover was filled with unimaginable angst. The Passover was filled with unimaginable angst. Now if we go back several verses from where Kyle read in chapter 12, verse 11, it says this. Referring to that meal. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day shall be cut off from Israel. And he then goes on to describe in more detail how they are going to observe this event that we know as the Passover. And it would have been really, really easy to have just referenced this event a few weeks ago if I would taught this and expressed it within the happier sentiment of Easter and referred to Passover more as a contextual backdrop and then really pushed strong into what we will get to eventually. And maybe I would have asked whether or not you have attended a Passover meal, a Seder meal with any of your friends and experienced them accounting or recounting this Exodus journey and we would have rested in that place. But With the way that things fell, and being truthful to where we are, rather than having Kyle read some of those hard things, I decided I'd read some of that for you. Unimaginable angst. I don't know if you and I can can rightfully place ourselves or understand what it would have been like for us to participate in this final plague, to have been asked or directed that we would take a choice lamb, that it would live with our family for a few days, and then we would slaughter that lamb, then we would take the blood of that, and we would frame our doorposts so that at midnight, When the Lord and the destroyer passed over, he would recognize the blood, the sign of life on our houses and pass over us. And we would remain safe in place. Our enemies, those who have held us in captivity for hundreds of years, they would experience tragedy. It's hard to wrap your mind around that, right? Now, when I was thinking about the unimaginable angst, the preparing for this night, never having done it before, just going off the word of what Moses and his brother had said Yahweh was saying to do, I wasn't quite sure how to give you a sense of that outside of reading it to you and trying to explain it. So last Tuesday, I was doing what we should all be doing on Tuesday, finding tacos. And I was taco teasing. I was in my car preparing to decide where I would go to find tacos. I remembered an old scene from a movie that I thought could help to give us a sense of the angst. And I just want to let you know that before it gets really gnarly, it will shut off. So tech team, if you would. Did you experience a physiological response to that? When I say physiological, I mean, did your body respond to the signals being sent upstairs that there's impending threat? And maybe you experienced an elevated heart rate or you felt some goosebumps on your arms. And if you're like me, how many of you have seen that movie? I don't know about you, but when I was sitting in my car preparing to to find some food and I pulled out and I started watching... When the bombs started going off and the bullets, started, I, I actually stopped it. I mean, I can remember being a teenager when Saving Private Ryan came out, and watching that in the theaters, and being undone. I didn't watch it. I just, I just stopped it. Unimaginable angst and unimaginable horror. Exodus 12:29 "...at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his officials, and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead." And he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, rise up, go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you said. He sends them off. That's intense. You know, one of the things that we really want to be careful of here at Center's, and I think we do a really good job of this, is that we don't want to exclaim that we understand every single thing. And there are good reasons why we can ground ourselves here, and there is a way to look at this from a perspective of God's justice. When we think about, and Brent mentioned this the week before, when we think about the atrocities that Pharaoh, who positioned himself as a god over the people of Egypt, and him determining that baby boys of these Hebrews would be thrown into the Nile, that they would be killed. We can see the one for one, the tit for tat, the lex talionis I referred to several weeks ago, the eye for an eye, the tooth for the tooth. But you know in that scene that I just showed you at Saving Private Ryan, when you see those young men and you start to think about those young men, it's actually part of the theme of that movie. Every single one of those young men, they're somebody's baby boy. And you just imagine that night after the preparation for this, and there are perhaps many Hebrew women who have experienced the death of their own babies thrown into the Nile, perhaps huddled around with the kids that are still alive, preparing for this ritual, this sacrifice, this night. And then it happens, and they hear the cries and the wailings of their whole countryside. And I just wonder if there were people that night, even though, even though they'd been waiting and waiting and crying out for God to deliver them from their enslavement, I just wonder if that night their hearts broke in some way as well. But you know what's fascinating about that too, is when I think about that first Passover, I'm reminded of different stories that I've heard over the years. And so I put one up on the screen for you. I'm going to read part of it. It comes from Rabbi Lipschutz. He says, The following story took place on Edav Pasach, which is the eve of Passover, in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Blues rabbi. Rav Yithrael Spira asked for and received permission to bake matzos in the camp unleavened bread. After returning to the camp from their body-breaking labor the night before Pesach, the Rabi, along with a small group, assembled an oven and ground wheat kernels into flour. They mixed the flour with water and quickly kneaded the mixture, rolling out monsos to bake in their small oven. And flames danced atop the branches, fueling the oven, and the holy work of baking monsos for Pesach and Bergen-Belsen was underway. Suddenly, The commandant burst into the room, shouting wildly and swinging at everyone, his eyes fixated on the rabbi, whom he beat with a hair's breadth of life. The next night, the people sat down to a seder in the rabbi's barracks. They had everything, well, almost everything. The rabbi knew the Haggadah, which is the Exodus story by heart, and he was going to lead the seder, the Passover meal. For wine, they were going to drink the slop the Nazis called coffee. There was no shortage of maratha with bitterness everywhere, the the bitter herbs. The rabbi let it be known that it was able to retrieve a small piece of matzah from their failed attempt. When it came time at the Seder to eat matzah, everyone assumed that the rabbi would be the one to perform the mitzvah and eat the small piece he had rescued. After proclaiming motzi mitzvah, the rabbi looked around as he tried to decide who was the most appropriate person to take the matzah. And I didn't put this up on the screens. So he's trying to figure out who to give this one little piece of unleavened bread to. And the widow stood up and said, Since upon this night we engage in transmitting our traditions from one generation to the next, I propose that my young son be the one to eat the matzah. The rabbi agreed. This night, he said, is all about teaching the future generations about Yetz, Yetz, Mitzrayim. We will give the child the matzah. In other words, this is about teaching the future generations. About God delivering us. I'm reading a scene that takes place within the year of that scene that we watched in Saving Private Rhine right? As they descend on that Omaha beach, part of those stretch of beaches for Normandy on D-Day, as they're about to, with the Allied forces, try and make that final attempt to ensure that the Nazis do not take up more ground. And we know historically that over 6 million Jews and 5 million others who were deemed undesirable were killed by the Nazis. It is absolutely remarkable to be in the middle of that type of horror. You have these individuals with this story from centuries ago who are once again pleading for something that does cause extreme hurt for other humans, and yet it's about deliverance. You know, it's wild to think that when we struggle with passages or historical moments like this, you can remove any perspective of God from the picture. We can, we can believe or pretend or think there is no God, and yet we still have to account for what is happening. Do you see what I mean? If you remove God from all things and we just look at the course of human history and what takes place, we still have to account for what is happening. And in this space, again, we see people remembering a time when God was able. And it's fascinating to think that it's juxtaposed with others who understandably looked at what was happening during World War II and the Holocaust. Great Jewish theologians that would say things like, God died at Auschwitz. Because how could God, who delivered us then, subject us to this now? And so when you remember that first Passover night, your next one, the blank, is that they were given a series of rituals to retell it succinctly. And that's pretty important here. Look at verse 26, which is in the middle of all this, chapter 12. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed down and worshiped. That's the PG-13 version. Do you see that? God gives Moses this instruction that someday when they observe this ritual, this celebration, when they remember their independence, their freedom from captivity, the children are going to ask them. And when the children ask you, tell them this. Here's your script. Instead of going over all of those details, even though you can imagine some early children, maybe some adolescents, beginning to probe in and ask some of those harder questions. Here's the way that we can remember what God did to set us free. So we're going to need to step outside of this a little bit more, because if we were to focus all of our attention on that night and that setting, and then ask ourselves, what are we to do with that? Quite frankly, we would miss a great opportunity to revel in the goodness of God again. So we're going to fast forward here and take us several years in the future. How about four decades, 40 years later, when the Israelites have passed over, crossed over another river, not the Red Sea, but they've passed over the Jordan. They're about to embark on the journey into the promised land. You can find this in Joshua chapter 5, verse 10. And while the Israelites were camped in Gilgal, they kept the Passover in the evening on the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day that they ate the produce of the land. The Israelites no longer had manna. They ate the crops of the land of Canaan that year. This is 40 years later or so after this first Passover, and they're remembering that as they're entering into this promised And I'm going to tell you in a moment, this is really, really significant, but let me just fast forward a little bit further to the end of Joshua. If you have a way you can turn there to Joshua chapter 21. It's a very not often referenced section of our Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. that's actually really, really important. It's one of those that you want to try and remember. Joshua chapter 21 verse 43, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their ancestors that he would give them, and having taken possession of it, they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass. And that is supposed to be the fairy tale ending right there. I mean, that's supposed to be it, you guys. Uh, seriously, this is supposed to be the conclusion of their journey all the way into this place that God had promised to a man named Abram. Abraham, remember him, and that promise that he made to him that would go through this long, windy road that would somehow end up in Egypt. And I can tell you all that story, but we don't have the time. Then we move forward all these years later, and it has happened. And when you read through this first part of the Bible, again, you will see very, very difficult things, hard things. You will read terrible things, stories of human beings who are confronted with war and conquest and trying to get to where they want and are promised to be. And it's fascinating to remember and realize, even though you might not think about it this way, the, the promise of rest on every side is actually something that every single human being wants. Every single one of us wants to be able to lay our heads down at nighttime and be settled in a place that we call our home. And for that to be a sense of shalom, of wholeness, of peace. And that's where we think this is supposed to end. But your next fill in the blank is the rest of their history is about forgetting, losing, and trying to remember. We see in this covenantal relationship, they think that the goal of walking with God is to get to that place, to get to that land. But when we read the journey of these people closely, we recognize that God says things like, I I sent you in the wilderness to test and know what was in your hearts. In other words, there's something about, it sounds good to say, the step-by-step, the walk, the journey with God, and not just getting to a place, but we all know what it's like to feel like it's about the destination. And when you arrive somewhere, when you get what you want, when you have what you think you need, isn't it easy to start to forget? And many of us know the rest of this story, and we see what happens here. They begin to forget. So let me put something up that is not on your note sheet, just a few words for us. Passover, deliverance, and atonement. We talked about the Passover, and we recognize that this is about deliverance, this is about freedom. Well, how do we get to that atonement piece? We often think about this time, and we want to talk about the atonement, the atoning sacrifice, and it's fascinating to know that this Passover was celebrated, and then several months in the future was the day of the atonement, but because of our faith tradition, we do hold these things really closely together, and that's Okay because there's a lot of meaning to be found here. And when I think about that I'm reminded of one of my professors who just a few weeks ago her name is Dr. Shelley Carson. She is a neuroscientist at Harvard and she is done or has done most of her research in creativity, psychopathology and resilience. So the convergence of those three things. But from a perspective of of neuroscience, how the brain is developing and changing, again, driven by creativity, psychopathology, and then resilience. Dr. Carson, a few weeks ago while she was lecturing, she she shared about this Friday afternoon where a bunch of her son's friends came over to her house that day, and they're a bunch of big football players, and they had a party that they were going to be going to that evening. And Dr. Carson had a minivan, and so she had offered to take them to this party. And I still don't understand how those teenage boys said, yes, that's a good idea. I'm just thinking, we don't want mom to drop us off in the minivan at the party. That doesn't sound like the cool way. But alas, maybe Dr. Carson's a better parent than I imagine that I'm going to be. She somehow convinces her son and his football player friends to come to her house that Friday. And the way she tells it is, of course, they can't sit still, and the next thing you know, they're throwing a football around in the backyard, and they, they get really, really dirty. And so, they run into the house, go into her son's bedroom, and they all start taking off their pants, and she's like, what is going on? And one of them asks, almost sheepishly, uh, Mrs. Carson, would you be able to wash our pants before we go to the party? Yeah. So, she takes all of these jeans, brings them to the washing room, and she has the presence of mind, probably because someday she's going to become a neuroscientist, to check the pockets of these young football player kids. So she's finding stuff, you know, imagining maybe some money or some gum. And lo and behold, she finds a piece of paper. It's the same one that I used earlier. She finds a piece of paper and it's it's dog dog eared. It's folded over again, you know, one of these football players, and she opens it up, and she can't believe it. But it's a poem by Emily Dickinson. And the way that Dr. Carson tells this story is she is so surprised. She has to wonder to herself, what is it about this? diminutive woman from two centuries ago that speaks to this big, burly, young football player. And the move that she makes for us, she says that everyone has the Remy B. Dickinson poem. We all have things from the past that inspire us and push forward into the future, and others might not be able to ascertain why those things matter to us, but every single one of us is connected to other humans in the past that give us a sense of what we can do to perhaps move forward. And when we talk about the Passover, we don't just think about it from their place as those people, because if we do, it's really easy to just run by that stuff. And we can try and place ourselves a little bit more with the saving prior Ryan and all those things. We can hear about their history. We can even talk about where we are just today, but we do know there's something in the middle there, right? So let's look at this word. Atonement, which we've connected deeply to the Passover. It's on your screen. It comes from Latin, adunamentum. And then from Hebrew, Kaparet, which refers to the mercy seat, which is taken from the Hebrew word kafar, which means to cover and to cleanse. And remember, I talked about the Day of Atonement earlier this morning. Britt was sharing about some podcasts he's listening to. He's really excited. I think Britt is going to teach on the Day of Atonement in the future, right? Okay. So, there's just one part of it where the priest goes into the Holy of Holies to the ark of the tabernacles covered in gold. And they take the blood of one of the slaughtered animals and they drip it over the gold. They cover the ark. Isn't that really weird to think? Right? This beautiful gold thing covered with blood, symbolizing life. And when we talk about atonement, We're taking it all the way back to that experience of this this ritual, this time that's so far removed from us. And so we ought to ask ourselves this question for this present day, for today. How does the Passover affect our understanding of atonement? This is your next fill-in-the-blank. How does it affect us? And I broke it up. Say, how does it affect our understanding of atonement? one meant. I mean, think about the etymological roots, the 16th century, where atonement was there understood as a moment in time where God would be reconciling humanity and trying to understand what happens there on that cross. When you hear the word atonement, what do you think of? just for a moment, by ourselves, what do you think when you hear the word atonement? You don't need to shout it out loud. (laughs) I'm not asking you to, really. I'm asking you to to, to hear the words that go on your head. Now, I'd wager that if we all said it out at the same time, we'd hear one thing, right? No, there's no way. (laughs) There's no way if I asked every single one of us to, to, to speak out what we thought of or the words we thought of when we heard it, we'd say the same thing. There are so many different things that we would say. But what's interesting, when we talk about things, we often think, well, if I say this, everyone understands what I'm saying. We all believe the same thing. Wrong. We know that's not true. right? So let me just show you a little two-by-two matrix to maybe give us a sense I didn't put this in your note sheet because I thought it might be too small. All right, so here's a two-by-two matrix. I I made this this past week to hopefully give us just a little bit of a sense. And so the x-axis, that horizontal axis, is is dated chronologically from pre-modern to modern. Even though when we think about modern, we generally think about the 18th century. But for the purposes of this matrix, I went from 100 to 1500 A.D., and then modern after that. And then on the y-axis, that vertical axis, uh, g- general, uh, it's a generalization of, of popularity. And when I say popularity, I'm talking about its widespread adherence in the ecumenical church, so the worldwide, worldwide church amongst different traditions and denominations. And if I asked you to, to explain every single one of these, it'd be like, all right, let's do it. Right? Because that's what atonement is right there. Right? I'll just walk through these really briefly, and in parentheses, we see the names of church fathers or theologians across the centuries that have written or spoken about these things. that top left-hand corner, pre-modern, high in popularity, Christus Victor, Iranius, Athanasius of Alexandria, Ex- Alexandria, excuse me, Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine of Hippo and for Christus Victor, the idea, the emphasis, and all these, it's it's about emphasis. The emphasis is that Jesus Christ is risen and proclaims victory over sin and death. The emphasis is on that triumphant exclamation point over sin and death. Beneath it, the classical theory, the ransom theory, origin in the third century. In this view, the idea was that there needed to be some payment because there was a the debt, that humanity had occurred, a debt toward God, and so someone needed to be paid, and interestingly, with this ransom theory, there was debate about, well, is the debt going to be paid to God or is the debt going to be paid to Satan? Okay, so there was a d- d- debate there. I can remember being in college. I-, I looked at my old notes and reading that for the first time thinking, what was my 19-year-old brain thinking? The participation theory Again, some converging names, Athanasius of Alexandria and Gregory of Nyssa the 4th and 5th centuries. The idea here, the emphasis was on the sacraments, particularly in the Eucharist communion and in baptism. And so when we use language to say that we were buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in the newness of life. And all of these have grounding in scripture. We, we would have found that beginning to be fueled by this participa- participatory theory. The satisfaction theory, lower in popularity by onsom the idea here was that God's view of justice had to be satisfied, that there was great inequity a great imbalance between humans and God in some way, somehow the cross would satisfy justice in God's view. And underneath the recapitulation theory by Arrhenius in the second century, this was a reenactment of history. It would refer to the first Adam and Jesus as the second Adam, right? We see those in Romans and in the recapitulation theory as Jesus is what has happened through the fathers, this great reversal, right? So he doesn't, he isn't just subdued by it, he overcomes it. The moral influence theory by Augustine and Amlard, the 4th and the 12th centuries. The idea here is that they they stepped outside of just looking at what happened on the cross. The church was trying to connect what happened there with the life and the teachings of Jesus. They looked at Jesus and they saw his great moral teachings. They saw that he would say radical things like love your enemies. You heard that it was said, right? Now you're supposed to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In the moral influence theory. What they're saying is that because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Christ's fathers can take a self-sacrificial stance just like Jesus and live a life of love like he did. And then you go to the top right in popularity in modern times, the penal substitutionary theory of aton- atonement. And we can thank reformers like Luther and Calvin in the 16th century. And this was birthed out of the widespread corruption in the church. They were seeing great injustice there. And they took Anselm's satisfaction theory. And Anselm, remember, was just about satisfying the justice of God. And Luther and Calvin wanted anger to be satisfied. So they talked about this satisfying the wrath of God. And they looked at Scripture to try and see, well, maybe this wrath is being poured out on Jesus because we, they, they felt that human beings deserved some sort of demonstration of God's anger against them. Beneath it, the narrative theory, Volv, N.T. Wright. So we're moving into more modern times, the 20th and 21st century. And this is looking at, you know, when you hear Bible projects say that the Bible is one cohesive narrative through. This is that, right? One big story, one minute where God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5-6, through the ministry of reconciliation. The governmental theory by Gracious in the 17th century that God has a demonstration of what this is going to be on the cross so that people can fear punishment and decide that instead they would choose Jesus. The scapegoat theory, this is connected to the Day of Atonement, the stuff that Britt will teach about someday in the future, Gerard and Allison, again, newer in the 20th century. And this idea here is that just like those old animals that were projected onto, that were supposed to take the sins somehow of these people, that this would be cast on to Jesus. And so it was the projection of the, ex- it's, it's, it's almost like when I looked, the projection of the executioners and then us that he's the first martyr of sorts, he's a victim. The mystical union theory, Eckhart, Calvin, and Edwards, 14th, 16th, and 18th centuries. This was similar to the participatory theory, but really with Christian mysticism, the idea that there would be just this connection, this communion, with the risen Christ, that you would participate in his suffering somehow, and the resurrection of his somehow, with a death of his, excuse me, then a resurrection of his somehow, taking some of the words from Paul. And then lastly, the healing view, we'll give off now and roar the 20th and 21st century, similar to the narrative theory of this idea that relationship is at the core of what the good news is. And so everything with sin is about our healing and reconciliation to God. And Pam, you can take that off the screen. Thank you. You know, there's a reason why I didn't put all this on your paper. Because I don't want you to try and remember all that. (laughs) Really, because if we put this on your paper, what would happen instinctively is you'd look and go, Okay, well, I wonder which one am I? Uh, you probably thought you were one of those, maybe just one, maybe some of you are studied up on this, but do you realize when we speak of the wholeness of those things there's so much of what we do today that's wrapped up in Christians throughout the centuries trying to understand what this means Jesus' death on the cross, God's love, his sacrifice, forgiveness are you saying that that is what is there? So I'm going to fast. Forward here, and I'd said earlier that it was important to remember that Joshua had noted something about it being the Passover, because in Second Kings, verse twenty-three, Josiah shares something. In verse 21, the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as prescribed in the book of the covenant. No such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, even during all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. And the reason why I jump 800 or so years from that Passover at Jericho or outside of Jericho to this time of the kings with the split kingdom is because even though we can probably imagine that they were trying to do this, just like us, they started forgetting and not participating. Why? It's really easy, perhaps, to just chalk it up to something that God did in the past. So what do we do with all that information? can I just read you a couple just small verses, just a few before we get on our way here to think about how something that happened all those years ago to have influence for us today. John chapter one, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. He says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that beautiful? What about in Mark? Mark chapter 10, where the disciples are talking about power and they're asking Jesus where they're going to sit in his kingdom. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What about Matthew 21? This is in the final week of Jesus' life, and he's telling this parable. It's, it's one of my favorites. This parable where this father sends out people to check on his vineyard, and, and the people, the tents there, keep, keep killing them. And he says, finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. About John chapter 10, Jesus is giving that description of being the the good shepherd. And he's talking about how he is going to give up his life. And in verse 18, he, he says, for the, or 17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. I receive this command from my Father. Luke chapter 21, which is what we'll be talking about in just a few moments where Jesus is giving his last supper. He says that he received from the Lord this loaf of breath, and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And finally, stepping out of these Gospels in the 2nd John, way back in your Bibles. Excuse me, 1st John, chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm going to invite the band to come up. There's a lot there. But do you remember early on the message in Exodus chapter 12 when it said, and when your children ask you, here's your fill in the blank, and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? That's your takeaway for today. We can talk about the Passover and we can talk about communion. What does this ceremony mean to you? Because the reality is it has meant many, many things to many people for many centuries. And in providing you that information, the goal, hopefully, for you is to see that despite the debates and the arguments that Christians have had over all these years, these fancy words, isn't it wild that over and over it came down to a moment in their time where they were compelled by the love of christ that was demonstrated on that cross for forgiveness of sins and not just for ours but for the whole world so your last fill in the blank is this how jesus is presented it doesn't change when we read this it's not going to change it's here but what it means for us to remember him says something about how we are changing In other words, if you find yourselves here today and maybe you're not compelled by this anymore and you're just like, I've been doing this for a long time. You know, I've heard this story over and over. Or maybe you're here because you're exploring and there are words that you didn't know that Christians are arguing about but you've heard about Jesus and you've heard about God's love for you. And perhaps you're thinking about that wherever you are on this spectrum of someone who is exploring or someone who is excited or someone who's just going through the most or someone who's pretty much done with this now. Would you remember when you look around this room, there are others that are here like you and they wouldn't be here if it weren't for that you and I wouldn't be sitting here if it weren't for our reflection on Jesus on the cross, which we get from this story from centuries ago. And so would we be moved by the power of His love and His Spirit to go out into this world and remember in our day and our time His great love for the world.
0: Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening.